One of my favorite shows is Pawn Stars. And I like to watch Pawn Stars because of all the stuff that comes in there. I just I find that type of history to be compelling. I find all those things just to be very interesting. And so every week I watch the show, and if you watch it, you know that kind of it usually kind of happens like this: a guy brings in uh, his family heirloom, this thing that he has been kept has, that has been kept in a climate controlled room pressurized just right, has been passed down from generation to generation, and now he is bringing it in because he's going to sell it, a family heirloom, so that he can go for a vacation in the French Riviera. And he'll bring it in, and he'll tell Rick, the, the owner of the, sto- the shop, a story that's something like this. My great-grandpappy was one day fishing, and all of a sudden, Teddy Roosevelt happened by. And he and Teddy began fly fishing, and as they were fly fishing together, Teddy just really took to my grandpappy. And as Teddy and grandpappy were fishing, at the end of the day, Teddy was so struck by his relationship with my grandpappy and what an expert outdoorsman he was, and that my grandpappy had shown him where the largest trout in all of Wyoming were, that he said, here, have my fly rod to remember this day by. And so ever since then, I've I've kept, uh, I've, I've kept Teddy Roosevelt's one-of-a-kind, presidential, bamboo fly rod, and I've kept it, and I've kept it perfectly, and today, baby, I'm ready to cash it in. And so Rick will always say, well, let me bring in my expert on presidential fishing poles, and so you come back in a couple hours, and that guy will come back in a couple hours, and we'll see if we can't make up a deal. And so sure enough, the expert on presidential fishing poles will, will show up to the shop, and they'll, they'll go over, and with a fine-tooth comb, I mean, this guy is looking at every eye of the rod. He's got a magnifying glass, looking at every screw to making sure the screw is from the era, making sure that that particular type of bamboo is the type of bamboo that is used, making sure that nothing is synthetic, making sure that down to the very, very last thing that it is exactly as it is supposed to be, because everybody knows exactly the kind of fishing rod that Teddy Roosevelt uses. And eventually it'll come down to something like this. The guy will say, the expert will look and say, well, this looks okay and this looks good. I'm not really sure about this. But really it's going to come down to the cork handle. See, Teddy Roosevelt would only use a cork handle that was made from a very specific type of cork wood found only in the middle of the South American rainforest. As a matter of fact, this type of cork wood is so rare that it cannot even be found today. It has been completely wiped off of the earth. And so the difference is going to be found in this cork wood. He'll get the magnifying glass and he'll go over the handle and he'll make sure that it's just as it's supposed to be. And then he'll almost always look up and he'll say, well, what you have is a fake. Your grandpappy lied to you. He never fished with Teddy Roosevelt. Sorry. And you'll see these people and immediately their whole countenance falls. Immediately their whole world is crushed. Because what they thought was a priceless heirloom, what they thought was a priceless Treasure, in fact, was a counterfeit. And here's my concern this morning. My concern this morning is that many of you one day are going to stand before Christ at the judgment seat. And you're going to stand with what you believe is the priceless treasure of eternal life, only to find out, only to be surprised that your faith, in fact, is a counterfeit. Only to be surprised, in fact, that he doesn't know you. And so as we finish our, our series on the Sermon on the Mount this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to read from verses 15 to 29. So if you would stand with me this morning. We're going to read what I believe are some of the most sobering, 
and soul-searching passages in all of the scriptures as Jesus closes out this most famous sermon. Beginning in verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree, healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. And so as we come to our text this morning, what we see is is that Jesus, even going back to last week, gives us a number of warnings to close out his sermon. Now when we come to warnings, warnings are typically those things that we don't really like to hear. We don't really like to hear the warnings of the Bible. They are usually not the easiest sermons for us to hear. They are not usually the most pleasant sermons for us to hear. And I think this is mostly because humans are famously bad at heeding warnings, aren't we? Just think back to Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina, we knew for a week that it was coming. It was obvious that it was coming. As soon as it hit uh, Category 5 status right off the coast of Louisiana, they issued a mandatory evacuation. And then yet 100 to 300,000 people decided they weren't going to leave. Costing, ultimately, some 2,000 people their lives. Why is it that we're so bad at heeding warnings? Why is it that we are so unwilling to change our course, even though people are trying to protect us, even though people are trying to save us? I think the first reason is probably arrogance. Arrogance. There is something about us that we want to say, I know better. I know what I should do. I know what's coming. After all, what do the experts know right anyway? How often do meteorologists actually get it right to begin with? How, how much sin is in the preacher's life? And so we look at it and we're filled with pride and we just say, you know what? I'm not moving because I really, I know what's going to happen. It happens the same way every single time. The next reason I think is assumption. Those that it's not arrogance, it's assumption. It won't happen to me. It never does. It, 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 I'm the exception to the rule. We convince ourselves that though it may destroy this person and destroy that person and destroy that person, that I will be the exception, that there will be a way for me to overcome this. I'm just kind of bigger than all of that. 
But then maybe the biggest reason is autonomy. Autonomy. See, the thing about humans is, is we want control. We want control of our own lives. We want control over our own decisions. We want control over our own directions. And, our own, and so who are you to tell me where I need to go? I'll decide what I need to do. I'll decide what warning I need to heed. I'll decide what's safe and what's not safe. I will figure out my life on my own. And so one of the things that I have found out as a pastor is that humans are determined to make their own decisions and not even hell will change their minds. But we must train ourselves to be different. We must train ourselves to see the warnings of Scripture as promises from God. We don't often think of the warnings as promises, but we need to remember this morning that that our God is not a God of empty threats. Our God is not a God that is seeking to give you some type of terrorism in your life to terrify you to the point in which you will just be miserable. That's not how God operates. God gives us warnings because he loves us. God gives us warnings not in opposition to his grace, but out of his grace. After all, what is a warning? Why would you warn a person? Why do parents warn their teenagers? We warn them because we want them to change course so that they aren't ultimately destroyed, right? We, We warn them so that they might change course and avoid the consequences that are coming. This is why God warns us. God warns us out of his grace. God warns us because of his love that we might change course and not be destroyed. So this morning, as difficult as I know it is to hear sermons on warnings, we are going to preach through the warnings. We will always go through the difficult texts. Not because they are easy for us to hear, but because they are gifts to us from a loving and gracious God so that we might be saved, so that we might be protected, so that we might be delivered, so that we might not face our ultimate and final destruction. The first warning that Jesus gives us this morning is in regards of false prophets. He says in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So Jesus is saying, he is doing what is obvious must be done, is to protect his flat flock. He is saying, as the shepherd, I need to warn you about something. I need to warn you and let you know that there's a predator coming. I need to warn you and let you know that you are perhaps in danger. That there are wolves coming after you. And as he teaches us about false prophets, as he warns us about false prophets, he's doing this because Jesus understands how dangerous false prophets can be. After all, throughout God's word, his people are always referred to as a flock of sheep, right? And what is the natural predator of sheep? Wolves. And what Jesus is saying to us is understand the danger. Understand that they want to come into your life and Satan wants to use them into your life to destroy your faith, to bring you further from the Lord. He wants to bring their heresy into your church and divide your church. He wants to convince you that your sin is no big deal. He wants to convince you that you can really do whatever you want to do and find a Christian justification and a Christian excuse to do it. You see, I don't think we understand how dangerous false teachers are. But false teachers, do you understand when you bring yourself under the teaching of a false teacher that you are inviting the judgment of God upon your family and you're inviting the judgment of God upon yourself. As false teachers convince you that your sin is no big deal, 
As false teachers convince you to to fork over your money so that you might be rich. As false teachers convince you to put your faith of healing in a man rather than God himself. They are inviting you to come and to invite God's judgment on your own life. They're dangerous. And they're not just dangerous, but they're hidden from us. If there's anything more dangerous than something that is fatal, it's something that is fatal that we don't see as fatal. That perhaps we even see as helpful. But he says that these false prophets, these wolves, are clothed as sheep. They appear as sheep. In other words, they look like they're one of us. They look like they're a Christian. They, they say Christian sounding things. They say good sounding things. False prophets aren't walking around with a scarlet F on his shirt, y'all. False prophets look good and sound good and appear good. They look just like we do. As a matter of fact, if you were to ask a false prophet, they're not going to say, yeah, I'm a false teacher just trying to destroy your life. Watch out. Most of them are so deceived. Most of them are so blinded by their own sinfulness that they actually believe the things that they're saying. And so we have to be cautious as the flock of God. Because what Jesus is telling us here is they're coming. Is they're coming. He says, as they come to us, as they come to us, Paul in Acts chapter 20 warning the Ephesian elders, he would say, he says that fierce wolves will come in among you. Will come in. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Fierce wolves are coming. Now, the struggle with that is, is it almost feels unchristian. It almost feels un- ungracious. It feels judgmental for us to label someone as a false teacher, doesn't it? And so we are very slow to do that and, and often even unwilling to do that because there's just something that just feels wrong about that, something that feels unchristian about that. But brothers and sisters, we can't be so naive. We can't be so naive. Destruction often comes looking safe. The big bad wolf often comes disguised as the grandmother. Now we have to be able to protect our flock. We have to be able to to be willing to understand that in our community there are false teachers. That in our county there are false teachers. Perhaps one day even in our church there will be false teachers. And we have the responsibility to guard this flock against it. So Jesus says, how how can we know? How can we know who these false teachers are? How can we know who these false prophets are? He says you can look at their life. You can look at their fruit. That if you want to know what kind of tree it is, see what kind of fruit it produces. That the type of fruit and the health of the fruit and the character of the fruit will indicate to you the type of the tree and the health of the tree and the character of the tree. That if you want to know what kind of preacher he is, if you want to know what kind of teacher he is, if you want to know if he's reliable or not, if you want to know that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing or not, then you should look at the fruit of his life. You should look and to see, if you want to know what tree he is, see what kind of fruit he's producing. That you should examine the substance of his message. Every, every false teacher is at first a teacher, someone who teaches the things of God. And often, in the very beginning, they will come camouflaging it as Bible, as the scripture. And over time, what you will see is it will evolve. And the further and further and further they will get from the scriptures. A warning sign should always be to us anytime a man stands and say, I, God has told me to tell you. How do you know? How do you know? 
I would trust no man that doesn't say in chapter whatever, from uh, uh, book whatever, God says this. That you can verify yourself. False preachers need you to believe what they want you to believe. And it is to your own destruction that you believe it. It is to your own demise that you believe it. It is to the demise of your church that you believe it. It is to evaluate the substance of their, substance of their message and to measure it according to the word of God. That, to see if this is what holds up to measure it across all of the generations and thousands of years of church history. To see, is this orthodox? Does this make sense? Or am I so arrogant to believe that this man knows something that everybody else has missed? Substance of their, mer- of their message, the character of their life. The character of their life. You ought to know your preacher. You ought to know your teacher. You ought to know these men and be able to, to see in their life if they actually apply into their lives the things that they believe and teach. See, I understand that I can't have a great relationship with all of you. I want to badly. But I understand that not all of us are going to play golf on Fridays or you know, hang out with just a lot of us. But somebody ought to know me. A lot of you ought to know me. Anytime that you have a teacher that withdraws from the fellowship, anytime that you have a preacher that withdraws himself so that he is not in close community with anyone, so that he is, his character is not really known by anyone, so that the, the application of the word into his life is not known by anyone, it's a red flag. It's a red flag. It's a red flag that he's a, de- he's a deceiver, that, that he is a false teacher. Lastly, the motivation for ministry. I think this is probably the easiest one to find out. You watch a man's ministry long enough, you'll know what his motives are. You listen to him teach and preach long enough, you'll, you'll figure out what he's all about. Is he about the, the building of his own brand? Is he about the, the building of his own, his own legacy? Is he about the building of his own church empire? Is he about the collecting of, of his own bank account? Throughout the New Testament, these are the clearest indicators of a false teacher. That that he is in it for himself. That he is in it for his own power. That he is in it for his own influence. That he is in it for his own gain. This means he ought to have accountability in his life. The only way you can know that is if he has accountability in this life. And if you ever see a teacher that runs away from accountability, you run away from him. Because godly men seek accountability. They don't run from it. So Jesus is warning us of them. Now, for all of us that, that feels unchristian, to, to take these measures and, and to apply them to someone that we're listening to, or to, to apply them to someone that we listen to their podcast, or to apply them to someone that we watch on television, for all of us who, who it feels judgmental to us, it feels like it's almost in opposition to the way that, that Jesus opens up in chapter 7 when he says, judge not that you be not judged. I think we need to, to, to realize that there's a, a stark difference in being judgmental and examining the fruit of someone's life. There's a stark difference. You remember when we talked about being judgmental, what did we say it meant to be judgmental? It means that you're hypercritical, doesn't it? It means that, that you, are, you are looking for every imperfection in someone's life, that, that you're trying to, to pick them apart, and you're picking them apart at the same time elevating yourself, Right? And so it's, it's day after day after day. It's, it's not giving it time. It's as soon as you see a problem, pointing it out. It's taking it and understanding that every crack must mean that the whole thing is just 
unfounded. That's not what we're talking about here. What, what, what is the nature of fruit? The nature of fruit is that it takes time to grow, isn't it? The nature of fruit is that it takes time for it to be harvested. It takes, it takes time for it to come to bear in the life of a tree or in the life of a preacher or in the life of a Christian. That nobody, nobody takes an acorn and, and sticks it in the ground and calls it an oak tree, right? You, you don't go to Lowe's and buy an apple tree, put some water on it and say, man, let's eat some apples. It takes time. It, it, you have to see those things planted for a while. This is what we need to understand about examining the fruit of a teacher. Examining the fruit of, of someone who professes to even be a brother. Is we need to, what we're looking at is the long-term pattern of their life. What we're looking for is to see who they are over a period of months and years. How, how does the, the fruit come to bear? We don't want to just judge them by one bad day and one, or one good day. We want to see this, this pattern of godliness, this, this pattern of Christ-likeness take root in their lives and bear lasting fruit, bear long-term fruit. Now, where this passage gets real and gets real in a hurry is, what it start, is a word that it uses in verse 17, though. Notice what it says in verse 17. Jesus talking about false preachers, talking about false prophets, talking about these, these wolves. But then in verse 17, what does he say? So every healthy tree, every healthy tree will bear good fruit. Here's what he's saying. This isn't just about preachers. This isn't just about false prophets. This is about every tree. This is about every Christian. This is about every person who professes their faith in Christ. That it's not just the preacher that ought to have godliness in his life. It's not just the prophet that ought to have accountability in his life. It's not just the teacher that ought to have people knowing his character and knowing whether or not he lives out the things that he says. It's every tree. It's every believer. Because every good tree will produce good fruit. Every bad tree will produce bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. It's every tree. See, we have convinced ourselves somehow... That we can commit our lives to Christ, be saved by him, and then somehow live lives that are uncommitted to him. We have convinced ourselves somehow that we can come and lay our, our lives on the altar. Say, Jesus, it's a blank check for you. Jesus, you get everything that I am. If you would just save me, if you would just save me. And then get up and live however it is that we want to live. But what we need to understand this morning, to go back to the... Uh, to the passage from last week is we need to understand that the narrow gate and the narrow way are inseparable. The narrow gate and the narrow way are inseparable. You can't go in the gate and not walk down the way. You can't, in our minds, in our, in our southern, uh, southern United States cultural Christianity, somehow we've got this thing figured out in our minds that if I can just, if I can just slip in the gate... Like, if I can just slip through the door of heaven, if I can just slip through the door of salvation, then somehow I'm just good. I can continue to do whatever I want to do. It's the only cool thing is now I don't have to worry about it anymore. I don't even have to feel guilty about it because God's just going to forgive me for all of it. But brothers and sisters, you need to understand that you don't get the gate without the way. There has to be fruit in your life. Fruits of godliness, fruits of the evidence, the Holy Spirit working in you, desiring the things of God, desiring godliness, committed to your life to him. You see, salvation is not works-based. 
You can't earn your salvation. You can't be good enough to be saved. You can't be better than average and be saved. There's, there's not some type of, of, of abstract, uh, uh, abstract standard. If I can just reach this level of goodness, then God's going to accept me. It's not works-based. Ephesians 2 is clear about that. But what Jesus is teaching us this morning is that it is works-proven. It is works-proven. Salvation is not works-based, but it is works-proven. That if there is no fruit in your life, if there is no commitment to Christ in your life, then you are condemned. You aren't saved. You don't know Jesus. You've never been saved by him. You've never been delivered by him. You've never been rescued by him. He doesn't even know who you are, as we're going to see in just a moment. What about you? Examine the fruit of your life. Because what does he say? He says, every tree, every tree that bears bad fruit, what will happen? Whether it's a false teacher or a counterfeit Christian, every tree will be bound together and thrown into the fire. It's a warning we should heed this morning. What about you? What does the fruit of your life say? Where is the evidence of your commitment to Christ? Where is the evidence of your salvation in Christ? Where is the evidence of your godliness? Where is the fruit? The fruit tells you the tree. As we move to verse 21, we get what I believe, by my estimation, is the most soul-searching and sobering passage in all of the Bible. This is a passage that should keep us awake at night. This is a passage that should cause us to plead with God for those of, that are even in our congregation. Listen to what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You know who he's talking to? He's talking to professing Christians. He's talking to people that have said, Lord, Lord, who have called on the name of the Lord, at least verbally. He's talking to people that if if you were to do a a census survey, would check the mark, born-again Christian, would check the box. He's talking about people that if you were to run into the mall and ask them, are you a Christian, do you know Jesus? They would say yes. He says, yet many of them, many of them are counterfeit. Their problem is not a knowledge problem, that's evident. The problem is not a, a, a knowledge problem. We see that because why? They say, Lord, Lord. They're saying to whom? To Jesus, Lord, Lord. Jesus, you are the Lord. Jesus, you are the Savior. Jesus, you are the Christ. Jesus, you are God. Lord, Lord. As a matter of fact, when they do good things, they even say that I'm doing these good things in the name of Jesus. They know the answers. They have the right knowledge. They've sat under the preaching of God's word. They've heard it taught in Sunday school. They know what they're supposed to say. They're supposed to say, Lord, Lord. And so they do say, Lord, Lord. As a matter of fact, but as just an aside, this is a remarkable self-revelation by Jesus here. Revealing that, that he is the Lord. Revealing that he is God. And anyone who wants to say that Jesus is just some teacher, he must be a lying teacher because he believes himself to be God. But this morning, I want you to understand that the entrance to get into heaven is not through an entrance exam. You're not going to take a test to get into heaven to see if you've got the right answers or not. 
You're not going to take a test to see if you know that he is Lord. You're not going to take a test to see if you know about Jonah and the fish. You're not going to take a test to see if you know about what happens on the third day. You're not going to take a test to get into heaven. If knowledge could save, the demons would be delivered. For they know the truth about God and Christ. Their problem is not a knowledge problem. Their problem is not a good works problem. If we look at the resume of the men that Jesus is talking to, they have an impressive one. Better than most of us. It says that, that they have cast out demons. Have y'all done that? I hadn't. It, it, says that, it says that we've prophesied in your name. Have you done that? It says that we've done many mighty works. And when we did the mighty works, we did them in your name. Their resume is impressive. Their works are impressive. This is where we see Jesus taking the previous passage a step deeper. We see him taking it a step deeper. Is that, that you must have good works, but good works aren't enough. You must have fruit, but the fruit isn't enough. You've got to press into the heart. You see, just like there's not an entrance exam, there's also impossible to get in heaven based on your resume. Your resume will not get you into heaven. Your resume will not save you. As a matter of fact, when we believe that we can do all of these good things and that God will somehow especially love us and set us apart, what we in fact are doing are just furthering claiming our own independence from Him, our own lack of need of Him. Your status will not get you into heaven. Your church attendance will not get you into heaven. We need to realize these people had been baptized. These people had prayed. These people had likely fasted. And yet, Jesus says to them, you are workers of lawlessness. Workers of evil, as some translations say. See, their problem wasn't a knowledge problem. Their problem wasn't a good works problem. Their problem was is that they had never truly committed their lives to Christ. They had never authentically loved him. They had never truly entered into relationship with him. They knew the right things about him. They did the right things that should have been in their life. But yet their hearts were far from him. So Jesus looked at them with what I'm certain must be a heartbreaking look on his face. And said, depart from me. Depart from me. I never knew you. Do you understand this morning that hell is filled with people that don't think they should be there? Do you understand this morning that hell is filled with people that know the right answers about Jesus? Do you understand this morning that hell is filled with people that did good things in the name of Jesus, that went on mission trips, that were deacons in the church? Hell is filled with people that filled in pulpits and preached God's word. Hell is filled with people that did many mighty works in the name of Christ. And yet when they got to the judgment seat, he said, depart from me for I never knew you. I can only imagine that as they are in torment forever, that those words of Jesus are echoing in their minds. Over and over and over. I never knew you. Will you be surprised one day? Will you be surprised one day? Is your salvation built upon something you did at VBS? Is your salvation built upon merely a baptism? Is your salvation built merely upon your Bible study attendance? 
Is it built merely upon how good of a person that you are? Is it built merely upon all the things that you've done right? Do you love Christ? Do you love him? Does your heart long for him? Are you desperate for him? Do you treasure him? Are you committed to him? Is there fruit in your life? Are you walking down the path? Or are you just trying to slide through the gate? But one of the things that some of you may not know about my family is that Megan is a relatively recent convert. When we were at Hillcrest, I think within my first year there, she had to just come forward and say, I've never really committed my life to Jesus. I know the answers. I've taught Sunday school. I've been baptized. I've taught with a preacher. I married one. But I don't know him. I've never committed my life to him. I've never surrendered my life to him. And I want him to know me. I want him to know me. And she was saved. Now this morning, there's no amount of pride worth going to hell for. This morning, there is no status in the church worth going to hell over. Because all of those things, if they are done, baptism is good. We celebrate the Lord in baptism. Bible study attendance is good. We want you to to be hungry for God's word and to come and be fed it. Those things are good, but they are insufficient. They are insufficient. They are inadequate. It's a house of cards. If it's not first preceded by salvation, the will of the Father is that you would be saved, that you would lay your life on the cross, that you would lay your life before him and say, I'm all in with you. I turn from myself. I turn from my own power. I turn from my own autonomy. I turn from my own arrogance, and I turn toward you. This morning, I'm not asking you if you've been baptized. I'm not asking you if your name's on the church row. I'm not asking you if you're coming Saturday to the work day. I'm asking you, do you love Christ? Do you love him? Do you love him in a way that it has completely changed your life? Do you love him in a way that you've committed yourself to him? Do you love him in the way that it has come to bear fruit in your life? Do you love Christ? Or one day will you be surprised? Will you be shocked as you stand there with your church records, your baptism date, only to hear, depart from me. I never knew you. Your works are works of lawlessness, works of evil. As Jesus ends his sermon, he lands with a final warning. He talks about two houses. The houses are all essentially built the same. If we were to look at them with our naked eye, we would not be able to distinguish one from the other. They have the same walls. They have the same roof. They endure the same storm. But it's when life gets real and the storm comes that the difference is evident. The difference is the foundation. The difference is the foundation and the the storms of life beat against one house and they beat against the house and they beat against the house and the house stands. They face the judgment of God and the house stands. The faith perseveres to the end, walking the path to the end. 
Yet the storm beats on the other house. Beats on the house. The winds blow and the floods come and they come out of nowhere. And what happens is, is that the house falls and great is the fall of it. What Jesus is teaching us this morning is that there is no neutrality in Christ. You must decide one way or the other. Will you obey his word or will you disobey his word? Will you heed his warning or will you disregard his warning? There is no room for lukewarmness in the Christian church. You're either in or out. You either love him or you don't. You're committed to him or not. You want him or you don't. So as we think back through all of the sermon, as we think back through all of the warnings, what will you do with them? Will you do the words that he has said? Will you respond to him and come? There is no neutrality in Christ. No one claiming a neutral position will find themselves with eternal life. I don't want to be ambiguous this morning. I don't want to be complex this morning. I just want to be direct with you. Do you love him? Do you know him? Do you see it in your life? Do you know it in your heart? Are the fruits of the Spirit there in you? This morning, my prayer has been for weeks, leading up to this passage, knowing that it's coming, that some of you would finally overcome your pride, that some of you would finally take off all of that arrogance and take off all of that autonomy and take off all of that assumption and that you would come through the narrow gate. That you would just lay your life down before Christ and commit yourself fully to him. This morning, will you come? Will you come? Because let me just pr- promise you, he is worth it. He is the treasure that will never disappoint you. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, I have nothing else to say. I plead with you for their salvation. I plead with you, God, that you would save them. I plead with you, God, that you would deliver them. I plead with you, God, that you would deliver them from their own works, that you would deliver them from their own arrogance, that you would deliver them from their own autonomy, their own assumption. I pray, God, that we would come to you with more than a resume, that we would come to you with more than answers to a test, that we would come to you with a genuine faith in Christ, that Christ is the only way, that Christ is all that we want. And so, God, I pray that, Lord, regardless of the status of the person, regardless of their lot in life, that, God, if they don't know you, that you would move on them with the Spirit and break their hearts over their lostness and draw them to yourself. God, this morning, will you save them? Our confidence is in your word. Our confidence is in your sufficiency. Our confidence is in the work of the Spirit. We ask all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning if you're able? This morning, Aaron and I will be down front. There's nothing holy about us. We just want to talk with you about the gospel. If you'd rather talk with another brother or sister in Christ, talk with one of them. Talk with Tony. Talk with Alan. Talk with, talk with anybody. Talk with Richard. Talk with, talk with Mindy. Talk with somebody. Come to somebody and say, man, I just need Christ. I want him. If you want to be a member of our church, 
we'd love to, for you to come down and just explore what that looks like and let us just kind of talk with you and let you apply for membership and do all that kind of stuff. We want you to be a part of the body here as we move forward for the gospel. If you're a Christian brother or sister and you need to be prayed over or you need counsel or you just need someone to, to weep with you, come forward and let us, let us plead with Christ for you. But this morning, however the Lord has moved through his word in your life, I pray that you would respond.